0: Welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove.
1: And I'm Michael Bloom.
0: And today we have some very depressing topics to talk about. It's kind of interesting because I actually spent most of the week away from everyone. I was actually doing an anniversary trip with my wife and I wasn't really paying much attention to the news. And then I got back to it and uh, I realized that the world's on fire. Yeah. No kidding.
1: Yeah, I'd say I'd say depressing is pretty much par for the course for this podcast. I'd say this podcast is going to be more enraging than we usually have.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, so today we're going to talk about specifically uh, the recent deaths that happened from George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And then we're going to discuss specifically the riots. Um, and then we're going to have a discussion about the system of cash bail.
1: Yeah, it's going to be a really enraging episode, and that's a good thing. You know, yeah. the fact is that um, we've all probably, like, I know that for myself, I think that I've probably failed a little bit, and recognizing that's an important step.
0: Yeah, and um, and this is the first episode in a very long time that we're not talking about COVID much. Yeah. Um, but we should do a quick update on the COVID numbers. Yes. So, Michael, what are those?
1: So currently, worldwide, there are about 6.5 million coronavirus cases, um, and that's a that's over um, 5.5 million from last week. So that's that's like a million case increase. Um, so if you remember last week, we talked about there was a 600,000 case increase from the week before. So significantly faster spread again this week. Uh, yeah, total deaths is now in the world um, 382,000. That's, uh, that's an increase from 347,000 last week, which is about a 35,000 death increase. Um, and so again, that's an increased pace of death uh, from the week before when it was like a a week-over-week increase of 27,000 deaths. Um, So if you thought we were out of the woods, surprise! (laughs) Uh, um, And in the U.S. specifically, we're at um, uh, 1.9, about a million cases. Um, And, you know, last week, soon after our episode, we breached the 100,000 death mile marker. Um, Now we're at 108,000 deaths. Um, As a reminder that is about a 200,000 case increase week over week. So that's the same pace that we keep seeing about 200,000 cases a week um, increasing. And we've seen that, you know, almost without exception for the past couple of months. Um, And then on the deaths side, yeah, we're at 108,000, which is about a 9,000 death increase from the week before, which is actually an acceleration from that week. So um, again, yeah, the, the, the trajectory keeps going back and forth, but it's very far from clearly moving in the right direction.
0: So just keep that in mind when we're talking about our topics today. Although we're not going to be talking about COVID-19, it is still a very important issue. It is still affecting us, yeah. and it is still something we need that we need to do all we can in order to take precautions against.
1: Yes, and related to the topics we're talking today about today... As a reminder, this is a pandemic that is disproportionately affecting communities of color, specifically poor black communities. And so, you know, while it's not one of our explicit topics today, it is very much in the background of all of the conversations we're having.
0: Let's go ahead and start out by talking about the murder of George Floyd.
1: Yeah. So on May 25th, uh, George Floyd purchased some cigarettes from a deli. Um, in Minneapolis, um, and was accused by an deli employee of using a counterfeit $20 bill. And um, the deli employee then called the police, and some terrible, terrible things ensued from there. Um, So I I did, I kind of want to walk through this in in a fair amount of detail, just so that we have kind of the whole picture, um, you know, in front of us.
0: And also, a lot of what we're going to talk about today is going to be very disturbing. In fact, probably the only thing that we talk about today that's not going to be super disturbing and graphic will be our final segment about um, cash bail. So It will, will be disturbing, just not graphic. Will, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so if you, if you are someone that is going to find these disturbing or triggering, please turn off the episode or skip yep. to the last... Um to the last section, but alternatively,
1: if you're someone that is gonna not find these like really psychologically taxing, but you will be made uncomfortable, that's probably a pretty reasonable response,
0: yeah, absolutely, so in fact, if this doesn't make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, there's yeah. something wrong with you. yeah, turn off the episode and seek help um, yeah
1: yeah so 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 just after. Um, being in, uh, the deli owner called the police. Um, one cop car shows up responding to the complaint. Floyd is like sitting in his car. Um, and you know, two police officers approach the vehicle and, and start talking to Floyd. Um, at one point, one of the officers actually draws his gun, um, but then reholsters it. And it's not totally clear why he did that. Um, but then he pulls him out of the car and cuffs him, um, Again, not totally clear what the escalating event was. Although we do know that when the shop owners called the police, they did, they, they indicated that, um, Floyd was drunk and out of control. And there's no reason to think that that's actually true. Um, but that's important to keep in mind of like how the officers were potentially, um, you know, considering this situation. Um, and so, after they cuff him, um, they, you know, m- walk him towards their car down the block. At, at no point is he acting violently or resisting arrest um, in any significant way. Um, they move him down to their car, and and he does kind of resist entering the car. He, he claims that he's claustrophobic, and that, um, he, he, I mean, when you watch the video, it's pretty clear that he's having a panic and anxi- anxiety response, like... And so, you know, he is, like, trying to not get in the car, basically, but is is not in any way being violent. He's pretty much just, you know, being bulky at the same time as they're trying to put him in the car. At that point, another police car shows up um, with two officers, one who is Derek Chauvin, the other is Tao To. Um, and... One of the officers at this point is actually able to get Floyd into the car, at which point Derek Chauvin has the door of the other side of the car open and pulls him out onto the street. At this point, Floyd is laying on his stomach and Chauvin has his knee on Floyd's on the back of Floyd's neck. Um, At this point, all four officers are kind of holding him down on that side of the car. Um, Subsequently, multiple officers like step away and it's just officer Chauvin holding him down with his knee in the back of his neck as Floyd is gasping for air and pleading with them at multiple points. They tell him to get up and get in the car and he says, okay, you know, I, I, I will. And, but, but Chauvin never gets up off of his neck. And so while some of the officers are telling him to just get in the car He's literally physically unable to comply as he's being choked to death.
0: Yeah. And during this whole exchange, he is saying, I can't breathe, which yeah. is, which eerily reminds us of the murder of Eric Gardner mm-hmm. in New York. Yeah. And at one point um, he's calling for his mother He said, at one point, he said, my stomach hurts, my neck hurts, everything hurts. I need some water or something, please. And he starts yelling to the witnesses, they're going to kill me. Don't kill me. At this point, the murderer, Chauvin, he has, like, after Floyd became unresponsive, he kept his knee on Floyd's neck for almost three more minutes.
1: Yeah. And even after medics responded, because... You know, the officers, initially, because they'd thrown Float out of the ground and his mouth was bleeding, they they put in a not emergency medic request and then upgraded it to an emergency request. It's almost as if they knew that they were, you know, putting this person in mortal danger. Um, and then even after the medics arrived, um, Chauvin continued to have his knee on the back of his neck for another minute or so until the medics, like, Physically moved him off of, um, off of George Floyd. in In total, in total, um, Chauvin had his knee on the back of his neck for about nine minutes. And this, and let's keep in mind a couple of things, right? Like on the one hand, to Nathan's point, this is this is pretty reminiscent of the Eric Garner case, because for for a number of reasons. But one of the uh, important ones is that the ta- this tactic of like putting your knee in the back of someone, specifically on their neck is not allowed in and, and it's it's not a, uh, an approved um, police technique. This is known to be a specifically harmful technique for restraining someone and unlike other cases where some where police officers are responding um, you know instantaneously to something that they pre- perceive to be a threat in this case, he is totally immobilized, he is cuffed, he's not you know, resisting in any way and they are just continuing to choke him it's so so clear that they just don't think of him as a human being at all or like and you know are being just totally disregarding his life
0: and i want to take a second to address the what about isms the all lives matter people yeah all of that crap so the the counter-argument, or at least the counter-narrative that people often try to throw at this, is the whole, well, why are we only talking about race in the context of, of this event? Why, is, why are we even bringing up race? The All Lives Matter response is about trying to make it seem as if it's just a few bad apples and there's no institutional problem. So... I want to go ahead and address that with some important statistics. And these statistics come from the website mappingpoliceviolence.org. And uh, they gathered all of these stats through various databases, um, some of which were government databases like the Census Bureau, FBI statistics. Uh, they gathered obituaries. Um, it's a very comprehensive database. So. One of the things that All Lives Matter people often cite is the fact that in terms of raw numbers, more white people are killed by the police than black people. And that's true. But there's also less black people in the United States. So black people make up 13% of the population of the United States, but they account for nearly a quarter of all people that are killed by the police black people are three times more likely to be killed by the police and there's also there's also differences in where you might live so for example uh eight of the 100 largest cities in the united states actually have larger killings of black men per capita than the entire united states murder rate and also to clarify one other important point there's no statistically significant correlation between the rate of police killings and the rates of violent crimes in a given area. So it's not that they're committing more police brutality, they're killing more people because there's more violent crime. That's not what the factor is here. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is another important point, because one of the, things, the counterpoints that you also hear is, well, what about black-on-black crime? You know, why, why are we talking about police officers killing black people? Why don't we talk about gang violence? First off, I think Jon Stewart said it best when he was talking, when he was addressing that point with Eric Gardner, which is, are you seriously suggesting that we should hold cops to the same standards that we hold gangs? I mean, these are the people that we're entrusting to protect us. So I think it makes sense for us to hold cops, the people who are the government, to a higher standard than we hold average citizens. Furthermore though, it's not just about the fact that cops are doing it in the first place, it's about the fact that they're getting away with it, which is what makes them more likely to do it later. So between the years of 2013 and 2019, 99% of police who killed people were not charged criminally. And furthermore, 17% of black people killed by the police were unarmed. And that is compared to 12% of white people. So there are disproportionate statistics that demonstrate clear trends of racial bias. So when we say Black Lives Matter, when we condemn the use of the phrase "all lives matter" in response to it—we're obviously not saying that we don't believe that all lives matter. What we're saying is that right now there is an institutional problem that is specially affecting Black people. You know, it, one of the common uh, one of the common analogies that I hear people say is, "It's like someone's house is on fire. The fire engine comes to put it out." And then someone from a nearby house comes running by and says, well, why are you giving this house special treatment? All houses matter. And and, yeah, I think
1: it's... it's, That point is one that I think it's easy for us to overlook, especially as we see protests, as we see, um, in some cases, like riots. um, We are seeing the response of people who have been in many ways betrayed by their government and their society in many ways left out of their um of like the social contract you know we're we're, we're talking like if if everyone in our society was being treated and harmed and imprisoned and killed in the same way that african-americans were we would have an uprising in no time. Every yeah. every, every person in the society would, would be standing up and, and crying out against government overreach and mistreatment and injustice. You know, like finally the Second Amendment people would have their revolution. Yeah. But because it's a, a minority of our society and because many of us in positions of power and privilege aren't exposed to this all the time it gets ignored because especially yeah. and also because it's institutionalized because you know you know it's it's relegated to certain neighborhoods we don't see it as much because and impartially you know it's explained away by statistics to Nathan's point like people who who equate it with just higher crime rates and breaking down those false narratives that try to explain away the incredible injustice here is the responsibility of all of us.
0: Another whataboutism that I also hear is the concept of blue lives matter. So like the lives of police officers. And if you, are, if you are actively advocating for black lives matter, then that means that you don't care about police deaths. So first off, that's a false dichotomy. Mm-hmm. You can truly mourn the loss of any police officer who is killed in the line of duty and also want them to be held to a higher standard. And one thing that I will say is that if 99% of people that killed police officers were not charged with it, were not arrested for it, and were not convicted for it, then I'd be right there with you. But right now, we have an institutional problem that involves black people being killed by police officers at a disproportionate rate. Mm-hmm. And then the police officers do not end up getting charged for it. Yeah. So it's not just about individual circumstances. You can show me any as many anecdotes as you want, but it's not just about that. It's about an institution that is set up that we have signed a social contract with to govern us, That is not upholding their end of that social contract when the people that we trust to uphold the republic are responsible for dismantling the republic we no longer live in a republic and calls for order are hypocritical
1: i think that point is absolutely enormous and looms large in all of these discussions the fact is that we have And we'll talk about this a little bit more later when we talk about more of the protests and the riots. But we have the arm of our government responsible for administering law and order, pursuing unjust administration of that law and order. There's a reason that when people call for law and order, it is almost always in some way dog whistling to some kind of, you know, policy that will inevitably disadvantage black people. You know, you have like the war on drugs, which was a law and order push, which, is, yeah. which has been devastating to the black community. You have, um, you know, even even the most recent comments about peaceful protests calling for law and order that are just specifically trying to shut down conversation on this issue. Yeah. Yeah. One other case that we wanted to make sure to talk about because... Well, honestly, we just don't want it to get lost in all of this and and in, 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 in lost in the COVID coverage um, and all of that, is Brianna Taylor. So, um, Brianna was a 26 year old emergency room technician, and um, she was black and in Louisville, Kentucky. And on March 13th, just after, just before 1 a.m., um, police who were executing a search warrant used a battering ram to break down the door to her apartment um, and into her apartment. They fired more than 20 shots and they shot her eight times and killed her. Um, so a little bit more background on exactly what happened here. Um, so the police were investigating two men who were selling drugs and um,
0: It turns out they had already been arrested when this happened. Yeah.
1: And they uh, were selling, you know, they lived over 10 miles away (laughs) and they, they obtained a search warrant for this apartment in some kind of connection to receiving packages there um, that may or may not have been drug related. And so, yeah, even though these men had already been apprehended, they decided to execute against this warrant. Um, And it was, This is a specific kind of warrant called a no-knock warrant, which allows police to enter a home or residence without identifying themselves and without um, warning the residents inside. And so while the officers claimed that they knocked several times and identified themselves, um, that claim is disputed, and they weren't wearing body cameras. So there's no way to exactly tell exactly what they say they said. Um, but they battered down this door and inside was a legal gun o- gun owner, Kenneth Walker. And Kenneth, believing that he was um, in the midst of a home invasion, um, fired his gun once, attempting to fire it towards the ground to limit the potential that it hurt anyone um, and shot an offer- officer in the leg. Um, and as a result of that, um, single shot, they they shot nearly or over 20 times into the apartment, killing Brianna. Walker did not sustain any injuries. Um, and while they immediately charged him with um, attempted murder of a police officer, um, the charges were later dismissed because he had a very viable self-defense claim. He had yeah. a very reasonable belief that he was being the victim of a violent home invasion.
0: Yeah, and... Kentucky actually has a castle doctrine. Mm. And what that means is that if someone is in your house uninvited, even if they're unarmed, you are legally allowed to kill them. You know, in some States that don't have castle doctrines, uh, if the person's in your house and they are unarmed, then you're not allowed to kill them. Um, but in States with a castle doctrine, even if those police officers didn't have guns, then he would actually be within his legal right to defend himself.
1: If they weren't police officers.
0: If they weren't police officers. But because they were police officers, the government coming into his house and, and breaking in and attacking him, suddenly he gets charged with attempted murder. Yeah. And what was interesting is when I was first reading up on this case... I thought, damn, the huge injustice is the fact that this guy was arrested and then he was let go, and I was like, oh, okay, well, that's good. And then I realized, wait a minute, they still murdered
1: yes. his girlfriend. Yeah,
0: and they're not—they haven't been charged with it yet.
1: Exactly. Now the FBI is looking into this um, and doing an investigation into the in- incident, which is good. But but let's like let's also go ahead and dispense with the inevitable character assassination of these things. Brianna and Kenneth have no history of being charged with drug related crimes at all. Um, they He was a legal gun owner, she was just an innocent med tech, and they were like they were just sleeping in their home when someone you know battered in their door. and you might wonder, okay,, all right, why weren't these police officers wearing body cameras? Well, that's simple. They were plain clothes, so they were literally people they weren't even in uniform dressed not in uniform dressed as people on the street breaking into someone's home without body cameras how on earth was this person like not going to defend themselves yeah usually these no-knock warrants require swat or tactical teams to be attached to them but that they weren't dispensed in this case and and let's let's spend just a minute to talk about like what exactly these no-knock warrants are because it seems like that is a pretty important part of all this if they had been required to like you know knock and identify themselves and wear uniforms and wear body cameras we might be in a very different position today but instead they used this invention that came along in the 1980s. So so previously, you had to identify yourself. You had to provide a warning to the people that you were entering their home and that you were a police officer. But in the 1980s, as part of the war on drugs, um, they invented this warrant because they were worried that occupants of homes um, were destroying evidence of drug drug traffic once they received a warning. So, you know, they knock, they say this is the police. You know, it's the classic... Oh, quick, flush your drugs down the toilet. Um, and so since 1981, um, so it was, yeah, it was invented in like the, the late 70s. And there, in 1981, there were 3,000 of these warrants issued. Now we have about 60,000 of these warrants issued every year. Um, and if you look at how these raids, which is basically what they are, break out, um, in recent years, 42% of these um, were on black people. Again, recall the statistic that, you know, black people make up a minority of the U.S. population. So it's already a disproportionate um, representation of that. And almost two-thirds of these were for drugs. So they were spe- they're specifically as part of the war on drugs. And these teams found drugs in only one-third of cases. So, so 50% of the time when they, without warning, break into someone's home, they find no evidence.
0: So, I would just like to ask for anybody who might be a uh, rural, more conservative, or more libertarian individual who is a proud gun owner, who does feel like uh, their home is their castle, all that. What would you do? Yes. If someone broke into your house with a battering ram, with guns, with a battering ram, armed, what would you do? Because yeah. I know what I would do, I would shoot them.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah, you might shoot them more than just in the leg. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, and
0: and you'd be justified in doing it because yes. people are breaking into your house.
1: Yeah. And infor- and you know we can talk about the injustice of all this, but the reality is that there's a serious racial bias to these yeah. types of warrants. This happens to black people disproportionately. and as a result of all of this, a young woman, totally innocent, is dead. Yeah. Shot eight times in her own home.
0: Yeah. And one other final point I want to make on this, and this was pointed out by uh, an, an acquaintance of mine uh, on my Facebook, and that is specific in, specifically in relation to the Second Amendment, especially how it relates to this case. And that is the fact that the Second Amendment, in a lot of ways has been a part of white privilege. Hmm. The Second Amendment right, the right to bear arms, is unequally enforced between black people and white people. I mean, think about the case of Flando Castile. Licensed gun owner does not reach for his gun, just informs the officer that he has it, and they killed him. So... One of the important points that I think we should make is that I've talked about on this podcast how I tend to be more pro-Second Amendment than most liberals. But the fact of the matter is, both liberals and conservatives have failed the black community with regard to the Second Amendment. Mm -hmm. Because when it is a case like this, where the government breaks into your house and attacks you, I mean, that should be the perfect narrative for conservatives to talk about the importance of the Second Amendment. Yeah, and where, yet, where's
1: the NRA now?
0: Exactly. And yet, where's the NRA? Where are the, the calls against government oppression? They're non-existent. Now time for one of our more positive segments. Tips for good. So, Michael, why do we do tips for good every week? We do tips for good
1: to bring a fact or a behavior um, to light that we can share with you guys that if you enact in your everyday life, it'll make the world a little bit of a better place. So, Nathan, what is our tip for good this week?
0: Well, Michael, our tip for good this week is to take an implicit bias test. Hmm.
1: What is an implicit bias test,
0: Nathan? Well, Michael... One of the biggest barriers to fighting against racial injustice, which was actually discussed by our good friend Larry Yates on this very podcast, is the assumption that racism is always overt racism. It's Klan members marching in the streets, burning crosses, it's Nazis calling for all Jews to be killed and exterminated. When most racism that does occur nowadays is a lot more implicit and it's based on implicit biases. So what that means is that maybe if you are a, uh, maybe if you're a police officer, for example, and you kill an unarmed black person or you use excessive force against an unarmed black person, it is very possible that in your mind you are not actively thinking, I'm doing this because this person's black. Or you know, I'm doing this because I'm a white supremacist. You might not be actively thinking that, but there might be an implicit bias that is causing you to have a negative view of that black person. Yeah. And and, and this and that, those are extreme examples. Even even smaller examples, like when when you're walking through, when a woman is walking down the street and a black person walks next to them and they clutch their purse tighter. Things like that. Luckily, in order to be more aware of our implicit biases so that we can try to fight against them, there actually have been implicit bias tests that have been created. Uh, one which I have actually taken was created by Harvard University, which is you can actually take for free. If you just type in implicit bias test, Harvard University... Uh, into Google, uh, you can find it. And you can find out what are your racial biases, what are your racial preferences, and some of it might surprise you. And the important point is, if you find out, based on this racial bias test, that you have a racial bias against a certain uh, a certain race, an implicit bias against a certain race, that doesn't mean that you're a white supremacist. It doesn't mean that you're a terrible human being. What it does mean is that you have something that you need to work on. Mm-hmm. You have something that you need to be aware of and that you need to reflect on how it impacts the way you interact with other people.
1: Yeah. And that's the huge part. Like, like partially it's gonna be about building habits that reduce the impact of that implicit bias on the outcomes of your decision making. You know, like like if one if you're a people leader and you manage manage people and one of them comes to you and asks for a raise and the other and you say, "Nah, I don't think you really need it. And, and another person comes and asks for a raise and you're like, yep, seems good. And their, beho- their performance is the same and one of them happens to be an African-American or a woman and the other happens to be a white male. That's, that's a time when like, it would be so easy to accidentally be implicitly biased, you might not even notice it. So building habits, building behaviors and expectations of yourself to divorce yourself from those biases at the same time working on resolving them. Because the most important thing is that you not let those biases do harm to others, you know, bring negative things into the world. The second most important thing is that you go and resolve them.
0: Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. So be aware of those implicit biases. And once you're aware of them, you can do what you can to try to, uh, to, try to fight against them.
1: And that's tips for good. So, as a result of the pot boiling over on racial injustice in the United States, partially, um, to make a metaphor, ignited by um, the horrific stories and videos that we've seen in the most recent weeks, most recently kicked off by um, the video of the murder of George Floyd, we have seen protests and riots both both peaceful and violent, break out across the United States. And we've seen a range of responses from our leaders and law enforcement. And so we wanted to spend a few minutes talking about what's going on, making sense, and kind of working through some of the issues of, um, you know, what what's acceptable and what's not, and what seems, you know, what worries us and what doesn't. Um, and also just spend a few minutes talking about like being actively like anti-racist and productive in this time.
0: So let's get the easy part out of the way. Michael and I do not endorse violent protest. We don't. However, we also recognize that eventually it's going to happen. I mean, We have, everybody knows the quotation, if you make peaceful protest impossible, you make violent protest inevitable. And let's not forget that a lot of the same people that are criticizing the riots as undermining what they're trying to protest are a lot of the same commentators that when it has been peaceful protest, when it has been taking a knee during the national anthem, when it has been posting Black Lives Matter all over social media, peaceful forms of protest. Black people have been called traitors. They've been called snowflakes. They've been called ungrateful. They've been said, if you don't like this country, then move. So when you're pretending that the big problem that you have is the form of the protest, but we know that you have been criticizing all protest from the beginning, we know you're not being genuine. Mm-hmm. So I don't want people to go loot stores. I don't want people to do that. But we have gotten to a boiling point. Mm-hmm. Racial tensions have been heightening and heightening and heightening. And, we, and, and there's been peaceful protest on that. And it's been ignored. It's been met with incompetence. It's been met with gaslighting. And with violence, yeah, yeah. So, so while I don't endorse the methods of the people that are engaging in violent protest, I don't blame them. Yeah. And in fact, I, w- I one other thing that I think is important to mention, I hold police officers to a higher standard than I hold these rioters. Absolutely. I hold them to a much higher standard, as you should, because they are the people that are trying, that have to enforce the law. You should always hold the people that are supposed to enforce the law higher than your average civilians. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is, this started with police officers not enforcing the law, breaking the law, and murdering a civilian. Many. So if you're you're asking me to get outraged about people rioting, hell no, I'm not going to get outraged about that because I'm too busy being outraged about what they're rioting about.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I mean, it is categorically one of the most important, like, fundamental parts of our society that, that peace- peaceful protest is always okay. And one of the most alarming things... That I've seen as a part of this one of the things that if we didn't have videos I would have a hard time believing yeah. is the violent response of police to totally peaceful protesters and the thinly veiled um, restraint or the thin the thinly veiled excuses that are used in order to then take violent action against people you know like like one of the things that we've seen sweep the nation um in in many cities is like the institution of a curfew. I think it's pretty questionable whether a curfew is, is like acceptable under any circumstances, potentially in the cases of extreme emergencies, never in the case of simply people protesting. And for some reason with people protesting like these, these police have rolled out militarized, um, tactics. Um, most of them non-lethal, but not all of them. Um, and they have instituted like these draconian policies in as a response and and you know they're just they really are just an excuse um to allow police to you know shut down these conversations like like the you know the governor of Arizona tweeted out and when he was talking about his curfew he specifically said um That, quote, this gives law enforcement an additional tool to prevent lawlessness. Prevent lawlessness here. Not not specifically respond to it. And the quote continues, police will be equipped to make arrests of individuals who are planning to riot, loot, or cause damage. Now, I don't know how they also have this ability to see into people's minds to know what they're planning. But to me, that sounds a lot like we're instituting this curfew so that we can prevent people from walking outside.
0: And again... They're doing this in the name of law and order. Law and order. But when the people that are enforcing the law are also breaking the law in order to do it, that's not law and order. It's mm-hmm. the exact opposite. Yeah. Yeah. And I've
1: been, I've been really conflicted and trying to make sense of, of you know, my, my um, understanding of kind of some of the riots. So let me, let me first of all say there have been riots that include people being killed. Um, a a number of people have, um, you know, people that didn't, weren't participating in the riots have been killed by rioters as well as police and categorically that is wrong and evil and a huge problem that is absolutely unacceptable and is like harming the communities that, you know, that we're trying to stand up for here removed from that are the riots that damage property and cause arson and and those i'm having a harder time truly making sense of because um, on the one hand it's everything you've been you were discussing nathan like the the fact that if you keep the gas on high and you leave the top the pot on the lid it's gonna boil over what else do you expect If you continue to abuse people and continue to violate their rights, if you continue to keep them in poverty and, um, you know, redline them and gaslight them and incarcerate them at high numbers, leave them in systemically worse off scenarios, police them harshly and kill them regularly, what do you expect but violent outbursts? Violence of a different category, of course, as has been has been pointed out by a few people than killing. You know, when you, when you light something on fire or damage, you know, property, it's, it's different than if you kill someone.
0: Yeah. But one, one point that I would also make to sort of not necessarily rebut that to, but, but to add context to it Mm -hmm. is the fact that when a civilian breaks a building, even when a civilian kills somebody, they're not doing it with authority behind them. Yes. They're not doing it with institutional authority. They're not doing it as the government that is there specifically tasked with preserving the law. Yeah. So yes, if you do that, then you should be prosecuted in accordance to the law. I'm not saying that you shouldn't. Yeah. But I'm saying that it's much more frightening when people are doing that with legitimate authority behind them and when going people with a le-
1: unprosecuted for it
0: exactly and then going unprosecuted unchecked yeah and defended by people in power mm-hmm. so that's the that's the main difference for me
1: here yeah I, I think that's totally right and it's it's interesting that we are getting a taste now seeing people that look like us having this impact but you know people in communities of color you yeah. know are have the, are having the experience where you know they lock their their windows and they close their shutters when the police walk down the street, yeah, you know they they experience this all the time. One thing that does I will say help kind of make a little bit of sense or or put into a little bit of perspective some of the rioting is that there have been reports um of white supremacist groups that have actually been encouraging their membership to show up at these protests. To start rioting and start destroying property and causing chaos. And, you know, as one example, in Minneapolis, um, in one night they arrested 40 people that they were able to trace back to, my, to uh, white supremacist groups. And so it's a pretty clear indication to me that when your, your literal opponents, the people that are trying to destroy you, are out there, um, you know, taking an action, you probably shouldn't be taking that same action. Because it's clear that they know that they're trying to discredit you. And so it's hard, you know, they're out there putting together these strategies to undermine this movement. And to the extent that it's possible not to undermine it ourselves, I think that's really important.
0: And during this time where there are large scale protests, rioting, and an excessive use of force by police officers in response to it, now more than ever, we need leadership. We need leadership on a federal level. Unfortunately, we have Donald Trump. Yeah.
1: Who's not who, only not a leader, but he's specifically an agitator.
0: Yeah. So in response to this, he actually called for the Democratic governors who, were trying to, um, who are trying to de-escalate what is happening in their states, he actually called for them to dominate the ongoing protests, to instigate long-term prison sentences for the people that are participating in the protests. And just think about that. These protests are specifically there because of authoritarian police, militarized police, and the overuse of police force. So naturally, Trump being the dumbest president that we have ever had, decided, you know what would be a great solution? More authoritarianism, more militarization, more excessive use of force. That'll solve all of our problems. That's not going to add fuel to the fire. And, and on top of this, so in response to these statements, there were protesters in front of the White House, who were peaceful protesters. At no point did these protesters do anything violent. Randomly, late Monday afternoon, the US police and uh, the US park police and national guards threw tear gas into this crowd. And it turns out it was because Trump was walking from the White House through the park to the St. John's Church. And he was going there to basically do a photo shoot. And so the National Guard threw tear gas into a group of peaceful protesters in order to clear the way for Donald Trump. That is what fascism looks like. That is fascism. Mm -hmm. That is authoritarianism. And you know... For the longest time, I've been saying that Trump has authoritarian tendencies, that he has authoritarian desires, but luckily, because we have checks and balances in this country and we have a constitution, to an extent, he cannot live out that authoritarian fantasy. He can't be the fascist that he wants to, but he's doing a damn good job of it right now.
1: So not wanting to speak too much from a position of ignorance and just having read the news, we reached out to a very close friend of mine. Um... Theo Biddlesneed, and had him call in live from um, his presence at uh, one of the protests in Richmond. And so he'd been protesting for a few days. He lives not a block from the uh, statue at the center of Monument Avenue, um, where a lot of protests have been taking place. And so he's been in the thick of it for all weekend. And so we caught up with him um, and recorded it for you. So here's that discussion. Um, so yeah, we know that, yeah, you're in the midst of a protest in Richmond. This is like the fourth straight day that you've been out there. Yeah. Um, um yeah, it started on Friday. Um,
2: Friday and Saturday were pretty intense. So I was a little, I wasn't, I wasn't out that much Saturday. Um, honestly stayed home a little bit, but on Sunday, uh, walked peacefully. Um, it was crazy intense. It was like forty five minutes of absolute peace and we got onto Broad Street and then they shot like we did all we were doing was marching and they shot canisters at us. Um we locked arms together, four lanes of traffic of people, like five deep locked arms together and they shot five canisters of tear gas in us and then we had to run away. Um huh. scattered and then I What happened yesterday was just absolutely atrocious. I can't. It's um, it's nuts. Um, Yeah, it's been it's been strong and and incredibly incredibly powerful um, and very eye opening. It's very clear that um, police are just they're here to brutalize. Then they'll take any opportunity to do so.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The videos that you sent me of stuff that happened yesterday just. If I didn't, if I didn't see it with my own eyes, I wouldn't have believed him. Yeah. They're wild. And there's things like Instagram has been like, has
2: been, uh, taking them down from people's posts and stuff, um, which is absurd because of violence. Uh, so I guess, but gotcha. it's not that we're causing the violence. It's the police that are causing the violence. It's just
1: yeah. horrible. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, yesterday described kind of the scene that happened, I guess, with the truck that, um, that came on to,
2: yeah. Um, so yeah, I was, I was actually cooking dinner. Um, and I, I haven't really been eating very well, uh, for a large part of this. Um, and I was trying to cook dinner and then I heard that there was a crowd coming. So I came out and stood on my porch. Um, and it was peaceful. It was peaceful for about five minutes or so when everybody was still getting here, the whole crowd hadn't even gotten here yet. Um, and then all of a sudden, I just see these, a ton of cops roll up in gear. One guy got down on his stomach like he was in war, aiming his AR-15 at the crowd. And then this truck pulled up out of nowhere and just tossed tear gas. Um, and then the rest of them tossed tear gas. And then I watched a cop chase my friend down with, with mace, just sprint across the street and try and get him. Um, it, it was, it was And I'm sure they'd be like, someone threw a water bottle. No, 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 no. Watch the video. Absolutely not. They they caused that. They yeah. started that.
1: Yeah, I watched the video. Everybody was well away from the trucks. Like there was no one even within like thirty or forty feet of that radius. And then yeah. you just see like five or six canisters just explode from the back of this pickup or this back of this truck, and the crowd just like starts running and and screaming and the, like.
2: Yeah, and then they, they, they pushed... They shot canisters at my house. Like, I was right in front of my house. Yeah. In my bushes, and, and I, like... Uh, I don't know, there's, like, a... a I, all of my friends were in tears. It wasn't even just tear gas. We were it
1: was the saddest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. I can't even imagine, like, being betrayed by the people that are specifically supposed to be protecting yeah. you. At-
2: yeah, I mean, even, like, Trevor Noah said, it's, like... We're, we, we live in a society that has a contract, a social contract that we all bind into. And it's being broken constantly, constantly, constantly. And yeah. it's being broken now, but it's been broken for the black community for 400 years. Yeah. So they're tired. We're all tired. Yeah. And we're all standing with them. And that's
1: why we're here. Yeah. Yeah, the very fact that this is new to us, the fact that this shocks us. Is of, as a, a, a exposition of our privilege, the fact that we've never had to see this before, but the black community sees this, like maybe not at this scale, but violence of this kind yeah.
2: regularly. I mean, you, don't, you don't, no one's like uh, the Black Wall Street massacre. That's never taught in school. That's just one of the most significant brutalizing experiences that the black community has ever gone through, mm-hmm. and has never spoken about in school. I know I
1: didn't learn it. Yeah, and and I mean the the fact is that like we think of lynchings as a thing of the past, but Ahmad Arbery was shot down in the street three months ago. Three months ago. Yeah.
2: And and the, these these things that police are doing when they're killing uh, black men and women—that's lynching.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So so tell me so tell me more about um, some of the things you're seeing and your friends and you have experienced down in Richmond with these uh specifically you know with the curfew and some of the actions that the police were taking. So the
2: curfew is uh, the, the thing I feel about the curfew is that essentially it's it's put there so that they can arrest people. So that there is a, there is something where the police have the ability to have a power over it. uh because yeah, I mean, otherwise without the curfew they wouldn't be they wouldn't have the chance to say, Oh, you're out past this thing, so um so you can't you can't be here kinda of thing. If yeah. that wasn't existent then they wouldn't be able to do that and they wouldn't be able to arrest people. Yeah. So that's one thing. Yeah. Um, I can say that I, I watched a video of a uh, a crowd of people trying to avoid cops and the cops walking down the street just mace for no reason they're walking away from them they're avoiding them and the guy caught it on video and those cops sprayed up into his window Hmm. when he was in his own house wow i know people that have been a bit that have ar-15s pointed at them when they're a block away from their home Hmm. i uh, my friend my friend zavi got arrested last night when he was a block away from home
1: just walking out past curfew just walking back home yeah and, I mean, the uh, Arizona is one of the states that has instituted these curfews, and there's this 8 p.m. as well. And, I mean, the governor of California basically said exactly what you're saying. He said, quote, police will be equipped to make arrests of individuals who are, who are planning to riot, loot, or cause damage or unrest. Planning to riot, loot, or cause damage or unrest. Yeah, not even that they've done it yet. And we're not just talking about, like, rioting. He literally said unrest. Yeah. It's like... They're saying the, the quiet part out loud. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear that they're out there apologizing. Um, and it seems like the mood at uh, so the lieutenant governor is out talking to you guys right now in Richmond.
2: Yeah. Um. There was a, I mean, the mayor the mayor walked this afternoon. He came up. He didn't, he couldn't speak. He wasn't he he wasn't strong enough to speak. Um and then the lieutenant governor came up and gave security and declared that he was with us and gotcha. it spoke, spoke powerfully and strong with, with us and standing with us
1: mm-hmm. and it's way different than what our mayor has just said and or done gotcha well I hope that that is actually borne out when curfew hits and you know I hope the police if they do show up at all you know don't take violent action cuz like there are police forces that are like taking doing the right thing out there and it's it's so clear that it's an option that these police forces are foregoing yeah i mean in one of my videos that i
2: think i sent you the in the background you can see a cop with his hands on his head like
1: what is happening yeah all right well theo thank you so much for calling in and giving Absolutely. us like what your experience live on the ground protesting in Richmond. Um, we love you so much and stay yeah. safe out there, dude. Seriously. I love you guys too. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you, Michael. Um,
2: I really appreciate you. here. I'm glad you guys got to hear a little bit of this. You hear him You're singing lean on it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> All right, dude. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Love you guys. Love you. I'll stay talk safe. To you soon. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments. Asshat, asshat of, of the week. week. So, Nathan, who is our asshat this week?
0: Michael, our asshat this week is Pennsylvania House Speaker Mike Terzai. Mike Terzai. What does he do? And, I've never heard of that guy. And he, he's kind of a figurehead in the this week's asshat of the week because it's not just him who's an asshat in this story. So, apparently, the Pennsylvania House is currently controlled by the Republicans. It's heavily gerrymandered. And apparently, one of them, Representative Andrew Lewis, tested positive for COVID-19 on May 20th. But the Republican leadership in the House, the Republican leadership under Representative Terzai, didn't tell the Democratic colleagues about this until a week later. So Democratic colleagues were going in to votes, to committee meetings with Republican members who were exposed to Andrew Lewis and with Andrew Lewis himself. And they had no idea that one of them had tested positive. And this was all while the Republicans in Pennsylvania were claiming that COVID wasn't as bad as it yeah. It actually was. And while they were, were
1: quarantining to... after work, like after they left yeah. the statehouse, they would they would go and quarantine away from their families to keep their families safe.
0: Yeah. But apparently not the families of their Democratic colleagues or
1: apparently not the families of their constituents who where they were specifically trying to, you know, get back there into society and reopen the, their whole economy.
0: Yeah. So. Terzai is not the only asshat here, but he's the leader, so we're going to go ahead and have him be the honorary asshat, but every single, every single Republican representative that hid the truth from their Democratic colleagues Mm -hmm. is a total asshat. Absolutely. And and look, if a Democrat did this, if a Democrat tested positive for COVID-19 and then purposely stood around other people Exposing and didn't tell them. them I would be just as pissed off. Yeah. In fact, so this is more pissed this is, off because yeah, cause we align with those values. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. There's no excuse for this. I don't give a damn what your politics are. This is terrible. Yeah. You know, this, this should be prosecutable. The speaker of the house needs to resign. Every single Republican that knew about this needs to resign. And we would like to end this on a positive note, though, because there is a hero in this story. um, And his name is Brian Sims. He's He's a Democrat in the Pennsylvania House. And he made this really emotional, heartfelt, and angry video that he posted and shared around in order to tell people what was going on and if it weren't for this, we might not have known. Mm-hmm. If it weren't for the attention that he brought to this, we might not have known. Um, so, you know, a huge, huge shout out to Brian Sims. And for calling it, good work, brother. you know, calling
1: it like it is, being as passionate about the risk that these people put all of their colleagues and their colleagues' families under by not telling them.
0: Yeah. Like, yeah, he's
1: definitely a high point in this story.
0: So... Congratulations to Representative Terzai, you son of a bitch, for being our asshat Asshat of of the week. week.
1: So for our last segment, I want to start off by painting a picture for you. So imagine that we lived into a society where we separated our criminal justice system based on how much money people have. So those people with more money are allowed to walk free and um, will be assessed at some later date and potentially held accountable for any crimes that they've they've committed. But the people with less money are sentenced to extra time and specifically because they're poor, they're sentenced to a minimum of three days and there's no maximum in how much they can be sentenced for for being poor. Um, But it could be up to multiple months or even years. And imagine how incredibly unjust we would find the system if this was in a dystopian movie or a book you know we would be part of the resistance that was standing up to take down the oppressors
0: yeah you know michael i would say that while you're describing that my first thought is that sounds like a dystopian nightmare and the second my second thought is i'm having the weirdest sense Of deja vu. (laughs) Why is that?
1: Is it maybe because that is exactly exactly our system? system. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. And so this is exactly the thing, the situation that results from the cash bail system in the United States. So to put this into a little bit of perspective, currently 60% of the U.S. prison population and prison and jail population has not been convicted of a crime. We're talking about nearly 500,000 people on any given day. Nearly 70% of those 500,000 people are being held for nonviolent
0: crimes. And they haven't even been convicted. And it's because of cash bail. Now, cash bail, I feel like, has been normalized a lot. Mm -hmm. And it's something that a lot of people don't think about. But as soon as you explain it, as soon as you kind of think about it more, you realize, wow, that actually is kind of messed up. Yeah. Cause like we see it in media, you know, it's a part of law and order episodes. Oh, you're gonna, you're, you're, you're setting this person's bail at this mount. Um, or, you know, it's part of like, uh, the butt end of a sitcom where, Oh, Johnny got arrested for smoking pot again. I guess I gotta go bail him out. Exactly. Like it's, it's been so normalized in our society, but I think that a lot of that comes from the fact that when people look at it, they look at it from a privileged point of view. So, if you get arrested for a small crime and the bail is set at, say, like, you know, $500, if you're someone who has a reasonable income or at least knows somebody who has a reasonable income, you might look at that and think, eh, that's not so bad. And I'm going to get it back anyway. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, why Why does, like, what's the big deal? But that's not the case for everybody. Not everybody can afford the exorbitant amount of uh, of cash bail that is for their release and the issue is if you can't afford bail money that means that you're going to stay in jail for days weeks sometimes even months before your trial yeah and in the meantime you haven't been convicted of a crime so the weird the annoying part of this the the unjust part of this is the fact that we pride ourselves on having a system that presumes innocence yes we pride ourselves on having a system in which the burden of proof is on the prosecutor. Mm-hmm. And so this ends up becoming basically
1: a an extra prison sentence for being poor. And And some people might respond and say, like, well, don't we have like bail bondsmen? Like we have a system for people to go and get money from somewhere when they need it. But if they, so, so bail bondsmen charge between a fee of between 10 and 15% for providing you with the money. So basically, you know, in that case, you contact a bail's bondsman. They put up the money for your bail. When you show up, um, they get their money back from the court system, and they you know, take their fee from you. Well, if their fee is between 10 and 15%, and the median bail in the United States is $10,000, that means that if you're a, a really poor person charged with a felony and have a $10,000 bail, you're going to owe them between $1,000 and $1,500 when it's all said and done. So basically that becomes a tax on being poor rather than just getting into jail. And
0: on top of that, those are the cases in which people do end up getting the bail money. What often does happen is if they can't afford that, they can't afford the interest that you might get from a bail bondsman or that's not available to you, Mm -hmm. spending even a few days in jail could make you lose your job, your house, custody of your children, this is before you have been fully convicted of a crime and on top of that sometimes what ends up happening is if you have if you're in jail for a minor crime you can't afford the bail money and you are given a plea deal which basically says you can get out of jail now and pay this fine or you can get out of jail in a few months after you've been declared innocent often results in people who are actually innocent of the crime that they're accused of pleading guilty. Yeah. In fact, 97% of criminal charges that were not dismissed resulted in guilty pleas in plea deals. On top of that, 15% of people who have been exonerated of crimes entered a guilty plea. So, fifteen percent of people who've been exonerated for crimes pled guilty to the crime that they did not commit. Yeah, and you know, part of that is they didn't want to risk a harsher sentence if they were found guilty, even though they were innocent. But another part of that is the fact that they want they wanted to get out of get out of jail because they couldn't afford bail.
1: Yeah, and yeah, let's and if you're going to be in jail, say your sentence is you know a year to three years. But before trial, you're looking at months, maybe a year, maybe more, waiting in jail before you even get to trial. So if your sentence is three years and you have to wait a year in jail beforehand, your sentence is thir- a third longer, just because you're yeah. you can't afford bail. And so one of the things that brought this, you know, to our attention and and to the forefront, and we wanted to talk about it right now, is is some of the fundraisers that are out there um, where you can donate money to help protesters and help the black lives matter movement are to specifically provide bail money for people that have been arrested as part of these protests. Um, But on top of that also, you know, because people of color tend to have lower income in the United States because of systemic injustice and inequality and because More people tend to take plea deals when they have to spend time in jail before trial. It's just another way that people of color are disproportionately convicted of crimes. In this case, literally crimes that they may be totally innocent of. So there's like a specific like racial component to this on top of just the general injustice of, you know, basically imprisoning people for extra time for being poor.
0: So the argument in favor of the cash bail has always been, we need to make sure that people show up to their court date. We need to make sure that they have an incentive to, because the idea is you show up to court and you get your money back from your bail. So that's been the major argument against getting rid of cash bail. You know, how are we going to make sure that people are incentivized to come to their court case. So this argument doesn't actually pan out in reality though. So New Jersey and Washington DC have already gotten rid of their cash bail system. And so far, and by the way, the DC, they got rid of their cash bail system in the sixties.
1: Yeah. So So, if you're looking at a sample size, it's been, it's been there for like decades. (laughs)
0: Exactly. And uh, New Jersey got rid of theirs in uh, 2017. So looking at the data, we can actually see that the defendants' rates of appearing for their trial are actually similar or even better than prior to this reform. Now, to also be clear, it's not that they've gotten rid of any form of cash bail for everybody because some people might be flight risks. So what they did was they did reforms to make it so that, number one, in order for someone to be kept incarcerated before their trial, prosecutors, it is the burden of prosecutors to prove that they're a flight risk or that they might be a danger to society if they're not kept locked up. Which, when you think about the fact that our justice system is based on innocent until proven guilty, that sounds completely reasonable. And they also have algorithms that they use in order to determine a person's uh, potential for uh, being at risk for uh, fleeing. And, and some of these algorithms have been criticized for having racial disparities. But again, it's still better than the system of cash bail. So after this was implemented in Washington, D.C., 94% of defendants are released pre-trial. And 91% appear in court for their trial. In New Jersey, 95% of defendants are released pre-trial and 89% of them appear for their trial date. Mm -hmm. And this has also happened in Harrison County, Texas, which is currently the third largest jail system in the country. So what they found was that when they eliminated the use of bail money for misdemeanor charges... Prior to these reforms, 40% of people that were arrested on misdemeanor charges were detained until their case was adjudicated. And experts estimate that this will result in 90 to 95% of misdemeanor defendants having pretrial release. So we have seen this work in other places we have seen that the argument that they need this incentive if they're going to show up to their trial does not pan out in reality Mm -hmm. so at the end of the day the stated reason for cash bail being in existence does not hold up when compared to reality and it disproportionately affects minorities and in effectively is a tax on poverty yeah so michael you think we
1: should eliminate it well, even on top of that, okay, so say, say you're callous to all those things. Say criminal justice is just not that important to you. Even though New Jersey has seen a 20% reduction in their prison population resulting from this change, let's say that like you know the justice of the thing just doesn't matter to you. What about the cost? Because it costs a ton of money to keep these people in jail pre-trial. It costs about $14 billion a year. To hold people pre-trial before their conviction, you would be able to reduce that if if New Jersey and Washington D.C. are any um, example by ninety-five percent, letting those people out pre-trial. And some estimates, if you include the total all-in cost to our society of having a cash bail system, and that includes you know the real costs of having to pay a bail bondsman, that includes. Um, and their predatory practices—that includes um, the cost of actually housing these people in jails, it includes lost jobs and wages, and you know, families that are going without support—the total cost is an estimated $140 billion every year because of our cash bail system. So even if the even if your heart was hardened to the arguments of justice, the economics alone should persuade you. To finish out this episode, um, we are not going to do our typical highlights um, as we usually would do. Um, We kind of think that would be inappropriate given everything that's happening in the world right now. Um, But instead, we will do nine seconds of silence. So rather than a moment of silence, we'll do nine seconds, one for each minute that George Floyd was choked to death. And with that, thank you for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week.